In Jesus' day, each Jewish male was required to attend three feasts in Jerusalem in the year. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt's bondage when the death angel visited every home as God had promised of the firstborn of Egypt and yet passed over every home of the, Egyptian, of the children of Israel who had the blood applied on the doorpost. They celebrated this yearly on the 14th day of Nisan, which in our calendar would be around March or April. On that day, between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 6 o'clock in the afternoon, lambs were slaughtered and the Passover meal was eaten. It was a high and holy occasion in the lives of the Jewish people. While our Lord purposefully ignored man-made traditions, he would point out to the religious leaders who are around him, by your traditions, the fathers have told you these things, but I say unto you, he was always pointing back to his authority, he was the Word, he was the Eternal Son. And while he did not observe the man-made traditions, the washings, the ceremonial washings and things that they had added to the law of God, we could go down the list, but he never ever violated those things that God handed down in his word for his people to observe. You will find him in the temple. You will find him in the synagogue. He obeyed all the law statutes and, and faithfully fulfilled it all. In fact, he sinlessly fulfilled the law, upholding perfectly all of its demands so that we as his followers today are not, as Acts 15.10 describes, burdened by that yoke of bondage. What Jesus saw at his first Passover observance after his baptism and as his presenting himself to his people, what he saw there was quite disturbing. Several things were blatantly being done that brought shame and reproach. As Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the city would have been flooded, for one thing, with people from all over the Roman Empire. There they would come from different places to observe Passover. The streets would be crowded, bustling and and shoving, and, and there would be an excitement in the air. And because Passover was the foremost of the Jewish observances, it had devolved into a big business for Jerusalem merchants. Anytime people are coming to town for something, the, 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 the merchant will always figure out how to capitalize on that, and they were no different at the, the feast days, but especially Passover. We must say here that often these kinds of aberrances occur innocently enough for convenience' sake, so that the pilgrims wouldn't have to be bothered with tending and dragging and bringing and hauling animals to Passover when they came from far-flung areas. They could conveniently, for price, purchase an animal at the, the temple when they arrived there. They found that animals could be bought at the temple. This, no doubt, set up in the court of Gentiles where this scene was taking place as our Lord entered there. And it just caused me to ask myself this morning how when things start, maybe innocently enough, I want us to ask ourselves this morning as the people of God, does our worship of the Lord involve sacrifice or is it a matter of convenience to you? Sadly, the Lord often gets what is convenient from us. If we aren't too tired... Or if we don't have something more important going on, he often gets the leftovers not only of our time, 
but of our attention, our money. These merchants sold animals right at the temple, conveniently, but at very marked up prices. He took advantage, they took advantage of the situation and decided to make money from it. Every Jewish male 20 years old and older also had to pay an annual temple tax. And it had to be paid only with acceptable currency. The Jews would take no money but the Jewish money. They Keep in mind they were controlled by the Roman Empire. So the currency at hand would be the Roman money. But the Jews would not accept the Roman currency. They only would accept Jewish or Tyrian coinage because the silver was purer. Pilgrims had to exchange the money from their homeland, not unlike when you go to a country and to do business there to buy, make purchases. There is an exchange place at different places. You can exchange your money. But there's always an exchange rate. And I've never been to a country where our, seemingly whenever I'd go there, the, the dollar was lower than what their exchange was. It was. Somehow it was always on the lower end of it. But not only do you get less back often, but the rate, the, the, the fee to pay just to have the privilege of converting that money, there's an exchange made there, and the merchants would make money on that as well. So this is what our Lord saw when he entered the temple compound. What had been started, as I said, no doubt, innocently turned into an atrocity. The corrupt priesthood stood by and let it happen. And the very sacrifices that represented what the Messiah would accomplish, what he would come to do, had turned into a sordid, materialistic, carnival, county fair kind of atmosphere. Sadly, we see things in the church today that are so far from the New Testament pattern and prescription that it's mind-boggling. And just as our Lord approached the temple and was grieved by what he saw, I wonder if he is grieved by what he sees in here, or sees done, or are left undone as we, as in his followers, gather in his name today. It seems in, in this anything goes, entertainment focus, convenience, and self-centered mindset of today. Has anyone, from the pastor to the elders to the deacons to the person in the pew, has anyone stopped to ask, is this scriptural? Would the Lord be pleased? Is His Word and and glory alone the focus here? Is this prescribed by the Lord? Or is this out of convenience or out of what we like or for any other purpose? I want us to notice several things about our Lord's cleansing of the temple. This is a dramatic scene here. I don't know if you can fully, in your mind's eye, see what He does when He comes up to the money changer's table like our little folding card tables, no doubt. They, they would set them up and for, different, for these feast days and just turns them upside down. Some are taken aback at this graphic display of grief and righteous indignation from the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think you'll see, not only was it justified, our Lord is preaching a message by His actions. First, who is it that is cleansing the temple? We need to settle that, shouldn't we? Is this some renegade who comes from from some out-of-the-way place trying to make a name for himself? This is God Himself. Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God. And we've noticed in our introductory verses here in John chapter 1 that this is the Word made flesh, the everlasting, living, eternal Son of God. Whose house is it? 
If you come to my house and you don't like the pictures hanging on the wall, that's your problem. It's my house. You know? Last night I was sitting there and I, it just dawned on me. I know my wife thought I was crazy, which I give her ample fodder for that. But I said, that stool in the living room upstairs, is it needed? <laughs> she looked over there as she was trying to, to watch the game. And she said, well, you put it there. I said, do you think we should get rid of it? She said, no, we could probably just move it somewhere else. It just doesn't need to be right where it is. It's not in a very convenient place. And, and uh, so I went upstairs right then and there, got it, and moved it and put it somewhere else. Why? It's my house. I asked the boss, and she told me I could move it. This was his house. Don't ever forget that when you're reading this story. Where Jesus is doing something very dramatic and what seems to be out of order to us. No, it's perfectly in order. He knows how things are supposed to be in His house. And I remind you that He declared in Isaiah 56 verse 7, My house shall be called a house of merchandise. My house shall be called a house of convenience, a drive-by, a drive-through, where you can get anything you want, however you want it. No, my house shall be called a house of prayer. When you look back to Second Chronicles chapter 6 and you hear Solomon's prayer of dedication, one of the most beautiful, glorious prayers in all the Bible. There are many recorded for us, but Solomon's plea when he comes... Bible scholars and archaeologists tell us there was no building, there's no building that could ever equal the splendor of Solomon's temple. So magnificent, so glorious was it, with doors of Corinthian bronze polished to such a glint that when the sun set on the the doors as you were approaching the temple mount, it would be like a mirror in your eyes, it would blind you. The overlaid of gold, all the, the gorgeous instruments of the Lord's service gleaming and the tapestries and the, the, the house of, of Solomon, would, the temple that he built would be absolutely unbuildable today by our standards to, to the exact specifications, not just the, the building of it, but the costliness of all there. It would be exorbitant. But Solomon looked beyond the, the trappings and the outer things that God himself had ordained and said, Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified here. Let your word be on display here. Let not the things that we see, the trappings, the the instruments of gold, the, the burnished doors, the majesty of your the music and all that was going on there. Lord, let your word be verified here. And I would submit to the New Testament church today, that is still what should be done in God's house. Oh Lord, may your word be verified here. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? What an unbelievable thing. Behold, the heaven of heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. 
Solomon got it, didn't he? He had all kinds of faults, but he got that God cannot be contained in the building, yet he condescended by his own appointment to meet with them there. It was the meeting place, the mercy seat. The early houses of worship were called meeting houses because God's people were meeting with the expectation that God would meet us here. And I hope this morning it is your heart cry that the Lord meet us here. If you just meet me, you haven't met much. If you meet one another, as encouraging as it is, and part of the prescription for us assembling together is that we can exhort and encourage one another, but you've missed it if that's all you get today. I hope you're encouraged here by our worship, by being with the people of God. But we expect, we implore that God meet with us. Show us His glory. Manifest His gospel and His power in our midst. Who's cleansing the temple? The Lord of the temple. The one who gave its prescription to be built. Please know that Jesus Christ is fully in charge and has all the authority of heaven and earth. All power is given unto Him. He can overturn tables in the court of the Gentiles if He wants to. He knows what He's doing. He has the authority to do it. Oh, may He ever be the head of His church. Remember that John's Gospel presents Him as the Son of God, the eternal, everlasting, self-existent Son of God. God in a human body who's come to earth to show us the Godhead. The Word made flesh who dwells among us. I wonder what he would throw out today if he came not to the churches but to Glen Iris Baptist Church. That's who we need to talk to today. What would he overturn today if he came to our meetings in his name? What would he be grieved about? And would he be grieved or pleased? Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament dispensation, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. While the word is to be verified here, we as his people give it and teach it and preach it and live it, and we are the pillar and the ground of the truth as his church here on earth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. But the point there, the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, you need to know how you as a pastor ought to behave, conduct yourself in the affairs of God's people, the worship of God's people, and that you may teach others also how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God. It's important to note here that as our Lord begins His public ministry, He goes to the heart of the matter. He's not dancing around the situation, is it? Is he? He's not asking for a meeting with the high priest, the Sanhedrins, to discuss, have a conversation about what might could be done and the different feelings and the attitudes that we're bringing to this situation at hand. That's not what he does. He comes into the temple and flips over tables. That's what he does. He tells the, the men, let those lives, untie these livestock, let them go. And to the doves, he says, take your doves and leave those who are selling the turtle doves. 
He begins literally and figuratively at Jerusalem, the center of all religious activity, goes right to the heart of the matter, the royal city, the earthly city that represents the heavenly one. And by the way, the temple was a pattern of the heavenly temple. He begins where? Where all judgment, where all mercy, where all grace begins. He begins at the house of God, with the people of God. I want to remind us here today, in these latter days, these days of apostasy, these days of perilous times, dangerous times that the writers told us would come. Days of apostasy and fleshiness, carnality. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. We're going to see that, aren't we? The suffering of God's people. But let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come. It's already here. There's not going to be times of judgment. The time is come that judgment must. It is imperative. It is the eternal edicts of God that judgment must begin where? In Washington, D.C.? In Montgomery, Alabama? In the city hall of Birmingham and Vestavia and all the places around. No, judgment must begin at the house of God, the household of God, the people of God. Wherever they meet, whether it's in a tent or a storefront, it's not the building, it's the people. Wherever they meet, that's where judgment must begin. And I will tell you, there can be no judgment apart from God's Word being verified. Verified. If it first begin at us, What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Isn't it interesting that he refers to Him as a faithful Creator, our God? These... Acts of our God are always on display. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture and we should come before Him with thanksgiving and praise joyfully, happily as the people of God gathering in His name. Oh, there ought to be such zeal, such hopefulness, such love, such praise when God's people congregate because we serve the Creator of all things. And we're here at His bidding, according to His plan. He comes as Messiah, as Savior Lord, to His own house. The house that will represent the sacrifice He's about to make. All those animals tethered out there represented what He would do. His blood that would be shed once and for all. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And it made Him sick what the gospel had turned into. Does it make you tremble at what the gospel, what is called the gospel, what it has devolved into today? Into triviality, into commercialism, into prosperity theology, all the things that are hawked as the gospel of God. Oh, oh, how grieved we should be. He goes to the very heart of the matter, and let's see what he finds. In these latter days, we must always... 
appropriate truth. It's not just enough to study what happened in the first century of our Lord coming to Jerusalem. These things are written for our learning and our admonition. And in these latter days, He comes to His church as Sovereign Lord and King. And as He writes to the church at Laodicea, just listen to the Lord's opinion of this particular church. He writes seven letters to churches. I've often wondered when those churches were read by the pastor to his congregation, I wonder what that message was like that day. I have a letter here from the Lord. He would like for me to read it to you. Do you know that's what takes place every time every truly man, God called man of God stands and opens God's words and expounds the word of God? I have a, a letter for you today. Church at Glen Iris. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches, unto the angel, and I do believe with my dear brother Dr. Talley, he's speaking of the pastor of the church. Of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Sure he does. He knows everything, doesn't he? The thoughts and the intents of the heart that thou art neither... And he's talking to this particular congregation. But let us listen as these letters are timeless. I know thy works. You're neither cold or hot. And most people are patting themselves on the back. We're not bad like that. We're not what we ought to be. But we're just, you know, we're coasting along here, brother. And we're just holding on here. Whoever told you that holding on and just being cold, lukewarm was good, that that was a good thing. We're just holding our own. We're just hanging in there. I know your works. They're neither cold nor hot. I wish they were either cold or hot. This is the Lord speaking. I wish you were either cold, just cold as an ice cube, or burning hot. But because you're neither, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want to, I don't have anything to do with you. Because thou sayest, I'm rich. That's the church in America today, isn't it? And increased with goods and have need of nothing. We don't need the Holy Spirit. As long as we got power and everything we can do with, with Him or without Him. You turn the power, the electrical power off in most churches and they, they couldn't have church today. Amen. Their program would actually, absolutely, the pastor would wring his hands and say, I don't know, I, all I have is PowerPoint and I can't do it. It's, all I've got is a Bible that's you know, it's plugged in somewhere and the lights are off and they can't put the screen down and the, the praise band, they can't plug their instruments in and, and the soloist can't be heard and, and uh, we, can't, we can't see because there are no windows. It's just a, a den. It's just a theater. So we'll have to call off church. If, if there was a power outage in Birmingham, Alabama, how many churches would be able to continue the morning worship service? Not unless they struck a match and lit some candles. I'm not trying to be facetious here today. We don't need anything. We've got our program. We're plugged in. Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee. How gracious is the Lord to counsel us. He doesn't just come and give us a report card. He sits down with us and says, let me just tell you what I would advise you to do. 
seeing that you profess to be the people of God in the church of Christ, what I counsel you to do is to buy of me, get it from me, go to the source of where it comes from, gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. We know this must be spiritual treasures. It can't be earthly treasures. And white raiment, be cleansed. The raiment... In the scripture, pictures the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That your robes, get your clothes clean, child of God. Repent, and that thou, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyes, say, Lord, help me to see. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Thou mayest see, and as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see how he tells his church to be zealous just as he was zealous in his own house. Behold, the saddest picture I think painted in the scripture, one of the saddest is this one. I stand at the door of what? Of the church. Who's he talking to? The church at Laodicea, he's outside and can't get in. Knocking at the door, if you'll let me in, I'll be glad to, and if you'll hear my voice, how do we hear his voice? Through his word. If you'll put my word as predominant and beg for my blessings and prayer is the, the theme, the program of the church, I will open the, and open the door, I will come in. You see what the Lord is saying? If you open the door... And if you'll listen to my word, I'll come in. And I will sup with him. The word sup is the word fellowship, is sharing a meal. And he with me. What a beautiful picture of the Lord in his house, in his church. The temple compound covered 19 acres. The original Solomon's temple, of course, was destroyed by the Babylonians when the Lord allowed them to go into captivity. But under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and those, that faithful ragtag group of people who went. But do you know when the Jews were released and could go back to Jerusalem after the, the years of, of exile, most of them didn't want to go back home. And the city lay waste and the walls were, were broken down and they came back and brick by brick and boulder, they began to, to build the, the, the house of God back. And when they completed it, do you remember what the Scripture says the the young, men, the young people cheered to look at this. Look what we've done. Man, there's never been anything like this. And the old people said, no, there's never been anything like this. We can safely say that today, can't we? There's never been anything like what we're seeing today. And the young people were cheering about the building they built, but the older ones remembered Solomon's temple. Nothing could be compared to it. The, the sacred enclosures, the courts, the, the colonnaded porches, and the building itself which contained the holy place and the, the holy of holies. The, the temple itself is used symbolically for the Lord's body and of the body of believers and the makeup of His mystical body, the body of Christ. It's also used to describe our bodies. And I want you to know in this day of grace, not only are we part of the body of Christ, and the, the church is His temple, not a building, but the church of Christ. But we individually are the bodies of Christ because the Spirit of God dwells in this temple, not in this building, but in your temple. And when we come together, He's in our midst. What? Do you not know that your body, your body, 
as a believer is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. You don't get to do it the way you want to. You've been bought off the slave market of sin by a price you could have never come up with in 10 trillion lifetimes. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Make God great. Magnify Him. That's what the word glorify means. When we praise Him, we glorify, we, lift, we magnify God among the heathen. We magnify Him in our presence. We magnify Him in our bodies and in our spirits, which are God's. I wonder what would grieve the Lord about the activities and the atrocities we allow to go in, on in and around our bodies. We've moved from the, the church. is one thing to say, oh yeah, Brother Lamb, but you, you all know this church down the road from me. And you, I hear it all the time. That's not what I'm concerned about. I'm, I'm grieved about that, but I'm concerned about this local body of believers. And beyond that, I'm, lo- I'm worried about this temple. If the Lord Jesus Christ drove out the money changers and the greed and the selfishness and all the sordidness that was going on around the Temple Mount, what was he grieved on that Chris Lamb looked at and watched and allowed to come in and influence me this last week? What would he want to drive out of this temple? Oh Lord, come and cleanse your house in our houses. Purge us from all contamination and vanity, uselessness, worthlessness, and all pride and rebellion. And fill us with your zeal. The church is dying of apathy. That lukewarmness, the reason our Lord so decries it, because lukewarmness is just one degree before being dead. And apathy is killing the work of the Lord. It should be a burning zealousness within us and among us. The immediate temple area was divided into four courts. The first court, the outer court, was the court of Gentiles, those who had been proselyted into Judaism. Then the court of women. The Gentiles could only go so far. The court of women, the women could only go so far. Then there was the court of the Jews, of the men. In fact, there were post signs posted, don't dare come past this point if you're not qualified. And then the court of the priests. It was in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, that the merchants had set up shop and were transacting business. Instead of being a place of prayer and praise, the temple area had been turned into a livestock yard. Can you imagine the noise and the din and the haggling and the bargaining and the the clanging of coins? It did not was not a precursor for worship and prayer, was it? Our Lord performed His first miracle at a private and sweet wedding ceremony in celebration, but He performed His first object lesson openly at the Temple Mount. He took the portable tables of the money changers that they'd set up and turned them upside down. I've always wanted to see that scene. I don't know why. (laughs) Maybe it just speaks to something of me of seeing him doing that. And the look, when you mess with people's money, well, you have crawled. Just go up to somebody at a teller at a bank and just scatter their money around as they're counting out. You will get the ire of... He turned over these tables and 
He picked up bits of leather cords that had been scattered all over the place that they'd used to tether the animals and bring them and tie them there. And he made a small whip. You see him on the sideline as he watches in his holy indignation. Our Lord has holy indignation. Do you know that? Rises within him. He begins to make a little scourge. And I can just see him pop it right over the heads. I don't think he hit anybody. The scripture just didn't say that. He popped it. But have you ever heard a whip pop? My brother used to have one. <laughs> a western whip. And guess who got it got popped near often? I can still hear that, that pop. There's nothing like a, a whip that pops that you, you know that, that sound. I can hear that. He was not being cruel. The owners could go out and find their livestock. He set them loose. Let them go. Sheep will know their shepherd's voice. They'll find the cows and all that belongs to them. In verse 16, he said, take these things. He told those who sowed the doves, take these things hence. Get these cages out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. He did not tell them to let those doves go free. They didn't lose anything. He graciously said, go and, and take the doves and, and get out of here. Even in judgment, our Lord is merciful, isn't he? Even in discipline, he is gracious. What was he doing? He was saying, I am Messiah. This is my house. This is my place. He was going after the, the sin and the greed and the fleshiness. He was proclaiming by his actions that he was the Son of God. He had the power to do it. And do you know they did not call the temple police who were very nearby, who could have easily arrested him. They did not arrest him. Is that not amazing to you? We preach sermons, we teach lessons, but as you went through your week this last week, as you met with clients or patients or whatever you do during your week, let me ask you, what could others observe that shows beyond a shadow of a doubt whose you are and where your priorities lie? He was fulfilling Psalm 69 verse 9, when the zeal, where it speaks of the zeal of the Lord has eaten him up. Are you controlled by a holy and righteous zeal of the Lord or by your apathy or by the status quo or by what you love? As you can imagine, the religious authorities quickly responded and they, they, they asked, now what, what sign are you showing? Or what sign would you show? What a question. I've often thought, what a question to ask after you see this open display of anger what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? In light of what you've just done, what, shine, what are you trying to teach us here? There were no doubt Levites the, who made up the temple police, the security of the temple. Their security guards of the high priest and representatives from the Sanhedrin, they began to close in around him. We can imagine this group. They weren't sincerely asking for information. They were... Politic, we were being, uh, being politically correct, but they were challenging his authority to, to behave in this manner. Who, who tell, how, why are you acting like this? Who, what, by what authority are you doing this? It is amazing they didn't arrest him. Perhaps they wondered if God had raised up another Old Testament prophet like Elijah. God had often sent prophets to his people. It had been a while since they had heard from the Lord, and perhaps he was a messenger from the Lord. What is it that you're trying to tell us here? It was a silly request. They had just seen the sign. They knew what was wrong. 
They knew they shouldn't have been doing that. They knew when the tables were overturned that the house had been turned from a house of prayer into a place of merchandise. They were asking a dumb question. They knew the answer to it. They were hard-hearted and not spiritual at all. And later in chapter 12, verse 37, John will write, but though he had done so many miracles before them, they believed not on him. That they demanded a sign showed the hardness and sinfulness of their heart. Some who hear the gospel say, if the Lord would just show me something. He has shown you something. Jesus Christ came to earth and died for your sin and has left you a record for it. You need no other sign than the sign of God's word. They knew what, what they were doing was wrong. and That's why they didn't respond more severely. That's why they didn't do something else. To answer their question, what did Jesus say? In verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days will I raise it up. Their response was 46 years. In fact, the temple was not even completed then. It would not be finished until around 70 AD when it was ironically destroyed by the Romans. They were working on the temple every day. They couldn't believe that he could tear down this building and build it back. You'll notice as we progress through the gospel that our Lord often spoke in veiled terms. He made his listeners think, especially those who thought they knew more than what they knew. You always find that when you come to the scriptures with the preconceived idea that the Holy Spirit will just show you things that you'll hear the word of God and it will be quite maybe the opposite or different than what you thought. As expected, they misunderstood and thought he was referring to the temple building behind them while he was referring to his body and prophesying his death and resurrection. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Centuries later, or earlier in 20 BC, Herod the Great had expanded with extensive reconstruction of the temple, and, and it was still being built in their, in their day. He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous sign seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, but the sign, and this is in Matthew, but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. That's all he told them. Destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. Jesus stays on in Jerusalem. He will observe the Passover. He performs various miracles while he's there. And many claim to believe that they were superficial followers like so many are today. The seed falling on rocky soil or didn't go very deep and when persecution or trouble comes, they fall away. Many believe, verse 23 said, in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. But, what was the problem? Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. 
The psalmist says, Lord, you know my thoughts. My down, my up, down up, risings and down sitting my thoughts from afar. You and I may misunderstand one another and not know what's going on in the heart of one another and the mind of each other, but our Lord never gets it wrong. And He looks down whenever His Word is preached and when we learn of Him where His gospel is studied and begins to show Himself by His Spirit. I'm very confident that He's doing that now as we meet because He said by the foolishness of preaching He saves those that believe. And as he unveils superficiality and sin and wrong practice and things wrongly held and that there's no hope and there's no hope within ourselves that our religion, our deeds, our our righteousness is as filthy rags. He, He lovingly brings us to himself and points us to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You did not have to bring a turtle dove today or a lamb, or a goat, or anything like that. You didn't have to put anything in the offering plate. It's not required. Provision has been made. The price has been paid. It is finished, he cried. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And the way is open to go into the holy... You can go to the Lord yourself this morning. And tell Him your need. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take your word today and perform the surgery in our hearts that needs. Lord, I pray that you would purify us here at Glen Iris. I pray you'd begin with me, Lord, as the pastor of this beloved church. Work in our midst by your word and by your spirit. Show to us all that would displease you, what you would not approve of. Lord, we invite you, please come in and, and meet with us today. We've asked you that from the very first. And show us what would hinder your blessing and, and keep you from supping, from fellowshipping with us. How tragic would it be to gather in your name and you not be here and to leave unblessed. Feed us, O Lord, from living bread and water that never thirsts. And to those outside of Christ, may they come to love you, not just in name, but to love you with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your church, and to love your word and your work, and join ourselves not only to your the, the local fellowship here, Lord, but to give ourselves over to your work throughout the day, wherever we go. Lord, would you bless us. We implore your blessing. And we pray that you bless us most of all by the salvation of the lost in our midst. Add to the church such as should be saved. We pray in Jesus' precious and matchless name. Amen.